All right, everybody, we are going to jump in. Thank you all for making the move over to the sanctuary today. It looks like we will be in here next Sunday as well, so just be prepared for that. And uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up with me to the very tail end of Romans, chapter 16, the very end of the book. And uh, as you are turning there, uh, we mentioned last week that we want to be able to mix application with some of the more heady parts of, the, of this series. But uh, as, as a warning for today, today is a little dense, and uh, it may not be, uh, uh, you know, it, it's going to take some work, I think, to kind of stick with some of the things we want to cover today. And so just be prepared for that. Um, we are going to, again, we're, we're still sort of introducing the series. Our goal is to uh, get into the issue of Adam and the covenant of creation that we're going to argue for in just a minute. And uh, again, there, there's just, put it this way, especially as we introduce this subject, there's a lot of argumentation that we have to sort of bring out and say, mm-hmm. here are five reasons that we believe this, and here are six reasons we believe this. And it can feel cumbersome because you're saying, well, that's a, lot of, that's a lot of minutia to go through. But I think we're building something cumulatively that actually affects how we read our whole Bible. Yeah. And so I know that our church, we, we, we care about the whole Bible. We want to put the whole Bible together rightly, and that's what you guys care about. But on the front end, it's going to take a little bit of head work and some thinking and some technical jargon and some things like that to kind of work through it so we can begin to construct what we think is a biblical um, hermeneutic and a biblical theology. So, Greg, can you pray for us, and then we yeah. will uh, dive in. Yeah, let's pray. Father, we are just overwhelmingly grateful uh, for the hope that you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ, a perfect Savior uh, who meets our every point of need as sinners, uh, Lord, that bring us back to you. And I pray that, Lord, through our time, Lord, as we, we learn, uh, some, as Mark said, some, some heady uh, stuff, as a lot, of, a lot of detail and nuance, um, Lord, I pray that we'd be renewed and strengthened in our faith. God, that our ability to see Christ and treasure Christ would be expanded and deepened uh, because of what we're doing right now. Um, I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would have a better grasp of your word, how it fits together, what's going on, how to make sense of, of the pieces in light of the whole, and how to see the, the box top of the puzzle, um, and how that filters down into every, every detail everywhere. Um, so, Lord, just help Mark and me in uh, these, these few moments to uh, just be clear, to be uh, helpful. Uh, and to make sense of your word, Lord, we commit our heart and minds to you. We all do. Um, and just, again, pray that we'd be more conformed to Christ because of our time uh, in these few moments. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So just a quick overview, and we'll use the screen, uh, try to use the screen throughout today. Uh, here are the three sort of big ideas that we want to cover uh, in Sunday school today. Number one, uh, how do we read the Old Testament? How are we to properly read the Old Testament, especially in light of the New Testament? Number two, just exactly what, what is progressive covenantalism? This is what we're, we're talking about, but it, it can take some time to really get our grasp on exactly what this means. And honestly, I don't expect uh, that in the first two weeks we've got everything figured out. I think that this is going to be something that as uh, time goes by, uh, we will, uh, no pun intended, we will progress in our understanding of That's progressive right. covenantalism. So, so get, give it time. Don't, don't feel like you've got to get the whole thing perfectly mapped out in week two. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen that quickly or that simply. And number three... Was there a covenant of creation made with Adam uh, in Genesis 1 through 3? Do we see evidence of a covenant between God and Adam? Which is, um, there, there's a degree of controversy to that point. I think it's an important point as we, as we look at that today. So just to jump right in, some of the things we talked about uh, from last week, and you can again look at the screen here. Uh, this slide, uh, Ian, can you give me the next slide? I may be detaching from, from the, the screen. 
Uh, on the top here, you've got uh, dispensationalism. There it is. And uh, you can look here at this. It says that, um, so for, for instance, John MacArthur, who would fall more on a version of dispensationalism, he says, uh, to make the New Testament the final authority in, excuse me, let me start over. Uh, MacArthur says, to make the New Testament the final authority on the Old Testament denies the perspicuity or clarity of the Old Testament as a perfect revelation in itself. On the other side of the, of the discussion, progressive covenantalism, Stephen Wellam would say, uh, the New Testament's interpretation of the old is definitive in interpreting the details of the old, but not in such a way that contravenes the earlier texts. So, Greg, just help us out here a little bit. What, what, this may sound like a really up-in-the-air discussion, but it has very tangible effects on how we work through this issue. When people say, should, we ha- should the Old Testament have priority uh, over itself, or should the New Testament have priority of, over the Old and, we, and how we interpret it, what is this discussion uh, getting at? Um, well, I... It- it affects, I mean, how, like I've said before, um, it, how we fit the pieces together, how we understand the individual pieces, uh, how we understand the story um, of the Bible. And so when we say, like, when we argue for, like, a New Testament priority and interpretation, we're not saying the Old Testament is, like, somehow less Scripture or somehow less God's Word. It's just, it's incomplete in that all that God was going to reveal had not yet been revealed. And I think we see this even in the Old Testament itself, um, like you've got the original promise that we're going to look at in Genesis mm-hmm. 3.15, that God's going to send a Savior, a Deliverer, uh, who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent, okay? The whole cross and resurrection, justification, imputation of righteousness, propitiation, none of that was revealed yet. Mm-hmm. All, the only promise was is that God was going to send someone who was going to defeat the enemy and fix what got messed up. And so to say um, that there can't be later revelation from God that brings clarity on that without undermining it, and it's not, it's by definition it can't undermine it right. if it's bringing clarity and developing in more detail uh, what was kind of in seed form in that initial promise. And so to say the New Testament priority and interpretation is not to negate um, the Old Testament. I mean, the, the perspicuity of the Old Testament, like that argument, I think, falls on its face just in light of what I just said. Like, so that, would that be saying like when we hear God's promise to David that one of his sons is going to sit on the throne, is that denying the clarity of Genesis 3.15 because it's more specific? No, it's a development of Genesis 3.15. Right. It's one of the ways God is bringing Genesis 3.15 to its goal, to its end. Um, and so just on the surface of it, um, if understood rightly, we're not denying the Old Testament in any way. We're just simply saying with the coming of Christ and the gospel, things are even more clear as to what God's plan had been all along. And once the, the newer revelation comes, we're able to look back at the older and be, oh, I get where that was going now. I, I get what, you know, it, where it fit in its own time, but also what, where that was leading to down the road. Yeah, so along with that, there's a famous quote here. Uh, if you guys can give me the next slide with Augustine at the top. There it is. It says, uh, Augustine said, the new is in the old concealed. So the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. And another way of saying it, B.B. Warfield said, the Old Testament, I love this quote. I've, I've said this before in the past. The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber, think of a room, I love the old word chamber, you think of a chamber that is richly furnished but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, 
but it brings out into clearer view much of what was in it but was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. So the example would be if in this room at night, uh, if, if I took a picture with just a camera in this room at night with, with almost no light available to us, uh, everything that's really in the room would be to whatever degree visible in that image, but it would be extraordinarily hard to make it out. And then imagine we have a dimmer switch and we just start turning the dimmer up and we take another picture and we turn the dimmer up more. We take another picture. You turn the, eventually when you put full lights on, the sun's up, you take a picture now, there is nothing added that was not in the original. But could you see it as clearly in the original? No, it was not nearly as visible. So progressive revelation is the idea that as, as Scripture moves forward, the lights turn up brighter, and God is not changing what He previously wrote. He's not uh, canceling out what He previously wrote. He's not disagreeing with what He previously wrote. What is God doing? He's bringing greater light to bear on what He previously wrote. Uh, GK, you got one that works better? Thank you, Ian. Man, Ian, thank you so much. Uh, Ian Webster is the man, ladies he, he and gentlemen. He is, he is. There, there would, we'd be in a lot of trouble without Ian. Uh, so... Uh, let me move here to the, uh, oh, here, we're already on the next slide. Perfect. Uh, G.K. Beale, who's, who's, a, who's a good uh, theologian on these issues, he says, it is quite possible that the Old Testament authors did not, now this is important language, it's quite possible that the Old Testament authors did not exhaustively understand the meaning, implications, and possible applications of all that they wrote. You can think, of, I got a quote here from Daniel. He saw the vision, Daniel 8, he wrote it down, and he says, I don't fully understand the vision. That's how the chapter ends. So he wrote things that went beyond his understanding. But were they beyond the Holy Spirit's understanding as the Spirit inspired it? No. So you have a divine author, you have a human author, right? The divine author, the Holy Spirit, does the, does the Holy Spirit ever contradict the human author of Scripture? No. The, the, you get this? I don't, I don't go too fast because it could get complicated. You've got, you got every word of Scripture is written by a human being, but it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So these are God's words and they're man's words, Right? The, the, the human intention of John or Daniel or Hosea never, ever contradicts the meaning of the Holy Spirit. The human intention and the divine intention match. That's how we can understand what's written. But here's what we're arguing. Are there times where the Holy Spirit knows more of what is being written than the human author? Yes. God has an infinitely deeper knowledge of all the ins and outs of what's being written, but he never contradicts what the human author is saying. Um, so let, let me continue the quote here. He says, subsequently... New Testament Scripture interprets the Old Testament Scripture by expanding its meaning, seeing new implications in it, and giving new applications. I believe, however, that it can be demonstrated that the, this expansion does not contravene the integrity of the earlier texts, but rather develops them in a way which is consistent with the Old Testament author's understanding of the way in which God interacts with His people, which is the unifying factor between the Testaments. Now, that bottom quote, it says this, Therefore, the canon interprets the canon. Later parts of the canon draw out and explain more clearly the earlier parts. Did you follow that last part? Later parts of the canon draw out and explain more clearly the earlier parts. The lights are on more brightly in the New Testament than they were in the Old Testament. God never changes anything of what he said. He never contradicts himself, but the lights are clear in the New Testament. And so when the new, this is the main point, when the New Testament authors quote and interpret the Old Testament, we are arguing, and I, I don't want to sound, like you can always sound arrogant in these things, like it's so obvious, because I know people, people disagree with this, but people I respect disagree with this, but I've never struggled with this particular point that we're making. I just haven't struggled with it. I've, I've always been convinced of it since I first thought about this. When the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, that's the decisive interpretation. 
There's no question about it. So the, the New Testament authors will add further clarity on what was in the Old Testament that at times perhaps the prophets did not even fully grasp all the implications of what they were writing. Daniel says, I don't even understand fully the vision that I'm writing, but I know that God has a meaning that he's inspiring me to write and God has a, he means even more than Daniel the prophet fully understood. And the New Testament sheds light on what even Daniel himself did not fully understand. Now that, that may sound a little bit uh, complicated, but let me, uh, let me show you a couple things here. Uh, Can I make a comment yeah, yeah, please, while you're Greg, looking that please. up? Um, another way in line with what you're saying, it's like, you, it, it's, this is going to sound like a dumb question, but it's, I think it's helpful. Did God know, like say for instance, in Daniel, um, when he gave Daniel that now, vision? I'll put the verse on the screen just so we can see it in just a second. Yeah, did God know what was going to come after? I mean, yes, he did. Did God know all the events, all the connections, and how that was going to be written about in Scripture later and interpreted? Yeah, so it's not like any of this takes God by surprise. Like, if God is the true author of Scripture behind and underneath the human authors, then everything that's written from beginning to end, God knew that before it was written. He planned for it to be written that way. He planned for those connections to take place in history and then be recorded um, in Scripture. So it's like, we, we have to understand, God, God understands what he's doing when he does this. Like, it's not a, a surprise to him. It's not like, oh, I didn't know that was in there. Mm -hmm. um, because God's the author of the whole Bible, not just part of it, the whole thing. And if he's the author of the whole thing, then in, in God's mind, because he's infinite and eternal, he knew the whole Bible before it was ever written. I mean, he knew it. And he knew every, every single connection that there would ever be. Um, and so I think it just further under, underscores what you're saying. It's like, it... Yeah. Okay, let me just show a couple more verses here on the screen. First, uh, Peter 1, 10 to 12, I think hints at these same ideas. Listen to this about the Old Testament prophets. Concerning this salvation, the, the gospel of the new covenant era, concerning this salvation, the prophets, this is the Old Testament, right? The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, the Old Testament authors, prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now, do you see our concepts in this passage? The Old Testament prophets spoke better than they knew, that they were trying to figure out all the ins and outs of what the Spirit in them was indicating as they wrote down predictions of Jesus. All the details were not entirely made known to the authors, but the Spirit was working through them, and He was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So do you see here you have the human author and the divine author, and does the Holy Spirit know more profoundly what is being said than the human author? Yes, but the Spirit never contradicts what the human author is saying. Do you see that concept? Here's another text, 2 Timothy 1.10. Paul says, "...and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus." who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Does Jesus turn the lights up when he comes? Yes, he turns the lights up. He brings things to light that were already known, but not fully known. They were already there, but they were somewhat hidden. And he reveals them more uh, clearly in, in his coming. Can I give one more, yeah, one more scripture? Uh, this is Paul in Ephesians uh, chapter 3. Um, and some of this that's in here, we're going to talk about more later, but I, I think it'll, it'll get the point across. He says, verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming... 
that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. And then listen to what he says. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so there were things that previous generations of God's people um, did not have access to in terms of their understanding. The material, the base material was there. They just couldn't see the connections. Like it, it was there and you go back, you see it, but they couldn't see it until the fuller revelation came, until Jesus and the gospel came. And Paul clearly says that it was not made known in other generations as it's now made known in Christ. Yeah, and let's go back to Romans 16 where we, where we're gonna, we were going to start. Let, let's look back at Romans 16, the very end of the book. And this one really is amazing. We'll start in verse 25, the doxology at the end of Romans. And, and li listen very carefully to the words Paul uses here. Romans 16, 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revela revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations, etc. Now, just look at the end of 25, beginning of 26. There's something pretty amazing here. Paul says, according to the revelation of the mystery that was what? Let's see if I can get this to work. Kept secret. Do you see that? It was kept secret for long ages. Now, this, it, it really is mind-boggling what Paul is saying. The gospel, the revelation, the mystery was kept secret for long ages. And then he says, verse 26, it has now been disclosed or revealed or made known through what? Through the Old Testament prophetic writings. That's what he says. Now, just think for a second. You're living in the first century AD. The Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible were written 1,400 years before you were born. You're living at the time of, the time of Paul, okay? The Old Testament, much of it was written over 1,000 years ago. And Paul says... The gospel has been revealed right now. It was God kept it secret for long ages, and God is now revealing it. It's being revealed right now. How? Through those books that were written a thousand years ago. How could something be secret if it was in those books that were written a thousand years ago? You see the question? The prophets talked about the gospel, but Paul says it was still hidden until now, and now it's being revealed through the Old Testament writings that were already written. Do you see how this is? It feels contradictory. If it was in the Old Testament, how is it hidden? If it's revealed now, how is it already given through the Old Testament? And um, uh, Don Carson is just brilliant on this. I'll, I'll quote him on the screen here. Don Carson says, the, the problem is this. How can the very things that are said on the one hand to be predicted in the past and now fulfilled be said on the other to be hidden in the past and only now in the fullness of time revealed? Do you, you see the question here? And here's what I think the answer is. I think the answer is the Old Testament foreshadowed Jesus through types and shadows that were not fully understood at the time that they were given in all their completeness. They were hidden in plain sight. Uh, I'll, I'll quote uh, Carson again here because I think this is a good way to say it. Paul, Carson says, Paul certainly does not insist that when the stipulations regarding the Passover lamb were first written down in Exodus, both writer and readers understood that they were pointing to the ultimate lamb, the Messiah himself. So it would be fair to say that such notions were still hidden, hidden in plain view, so to speak, because genuinely there in the text, but not yet revealed. 
And that perhaps is why a mystery must be revealed, but also why it may be revealed through the prophetic writings. Now, do you see this? The types and shadows of Christ, these patterns that repeat over and over in the Old Testament, at first they might not have been fully known to have been predictive patterns, but as time goes forward and as time moves on, when Jesus comes, suddenly it becomes completely obvious that the Passover points to Jesus, our Passover, who's been slain. Suddenly the Exodus obviously points to Jesus' last and great Exodus taking us out of bondage, and on and on. So these patterns at first were not necessarily seen to be all that they were until later when Jesus comes, God can go back and say, see, I've been telling you all along. It was there from the beginning, but it was hidden before your eyes. Now that Jesus has come and the Spirit has given you revelation, you can now see what was hidden in plain sight. It was there all along looking you in the face in the Old Testament, but you did not yet have eyes to see. And that's why you read it last week on the Emmaus Road when Jesus is talking. Remember, he, he, they don't know it's Jesus. I love that. Just had to, how, did, how did that happen? You know? And so Jesus is walking and they don't recognize him yet and they, they're grieving his death. And he says to them, it says, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he showed them how all the Old Testament is pointing to him. You see what he's, he didn't give them any new Bible verses. He simply revealed to them what was already in their Old Testament, but they couldn't see it, that the Messiah would suffer, that he would be crucified, he would be buried, he would be raised. They had no idea the Messiah would die. They had no idea that the Messiah would be scourged for our sins. No one was expecting a Messiah who would be killed. But the Old Testament, when you look back with eyes to see, isn't it so obvious Isaiah 53, he took our griefs, he bore our sins. It's once you see the fulfillment of the type and the shadow in Jesus, you look back, he it's everywhere in the Old Testament. Look at Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? They pierced my hands and feet. My, my tongue sticks to my jaws. I can see all my bones. They surround me like bulls of Bashan. Uh, my bones are out of joint. Well, at the time, you would know this is about David and his experience, and you know it's in some way perhaps pointing to a future Davidic king, but when Jesus comes, it becomes so clear. The lights are turned up. This is about Jesus. It was hidden in plain sight. It was predicted a thousand years before Jesus was born, but we didn't have the revelation to see it until Jesus came and died. And so the New Testament is bringing greater clarity on what is already written in the Old. Yeah, amen. I can't add to that. That's good stuff, man. All right, so we're going to keep moving here, but I want to say, on, at this point, it just feels like, well, what, why are we even debating this? I will, I will say this. If you grant that the New Testament has priority in how we interpret the Old Testament, you will almost certainly not become a dispensationalist. Because one of the fundamental tenets of dispensational theology is that the Old Testament interprets itself on its own terms, period. And that to go to the New Testament and look back to understand how to interpret the Old Testament is to break the rules. And that's why, again, we, we love John MacArthur here, but just to quote him one more time from the beginning here, uh, look at his quote at the top of the screen. He says, MacArthur says that to make the New Testament the final authority on the Old Testament denies the clarity of the Old Testament as a perfect revelation in itself. And if you agree with him on that, you will become a kind of dispensationalist. But I fundamentally disagree with him on that quote. Yes, the Old Testament is clear in many ways, but it's not equally clear in all its parts. And we can all agree, I hope, that the New Testament brings greater clarity to the Old Testament that helps us better understand how to read it. And so if you agree with what we're arguing for, uh, in, in contradiction to that statement, I think you will become a kind of co covenantalist. Whether it be, what, You could become one of several, but you'll be kind of a kind of covenantalist if you grant that premise. So let's... Well, I want, yeah. I want to say one more thing on that because, you know, you come to, you know, and things we're going to talk about at some point with the eschatological end times aspects of this, you know, like the rapture, when does that happen? Um, if, if you accept New Testament and uh, priority over the old, then you come to texts like um, 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 Thessalonians, um, and you don't see it talking about, um, talking about that the same way dispensationalists would. Like you don't right. see a pre-tribulation rapture exegetically in the text 
Right. Like if, 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 you know, Paul is referencing Jesus from, you know, Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking, you know, uh, Mount of Olives and all of that, um, you start to see um, you have to take that concept of a pre-trib rapture and you have to bring it to where it's not clearly there. And I'm, right. I'm not trying to say that to win points, but if you just do exegesis of like 1 Thessalonians 4, talking about when Jesus comes back, his people are called to him in the cloud, like you, you don't see a pre-trib rapture there. You have to assume that from the get-go. And that's one of the reasons why I think dispensationalists argue so hard against what we're saying is because if what we're saying holds, and I think it does, then it, it virtually eliminates the conclusions that they want the New Testament to reach because it can't reach them anymore. Right. No, that's exactly right. So we're, we're moving back here again. These are the two of the books that we've been referencing, especially that one on the left there uh, is, is uh, some of the books that resources that we're referring to. And now we're going to give kind of a five-point overview of uh, progressive covenantalism. And again, I'll just tell you, it takes time to grasp what this is. So don't feel like if you leave today going, I don't fully grasp it, uh, join the club, okay? This is a difficult thing to kind of get all the pieces in place. So don't feel intimidated by this list at all. But we're going to begin trying to get our feet wet in, in this and, and to understand it better. Greg, can you help us start walking through these uh, yeah. five points? Um, and so it is kind of funny. We got five points again. And um, <laughs> these five points progress from the first to the last that just, you know, I found that humorous. Um, but we want to say, okay, what, what is the Bible? What, what's going on here? And I think this, in, in, a, in a very 150,000-foot view, like you're not just in an airplane, you know, going over, you know, part, you know, the Southwest. Like you're, you're like up in space, like seeing a whole continent right here, okay? Like this is, this is the, the high, really, really high, high perspective on this. Um, a five-point summary of the Bible. Now, obviously, there is a lot of details you have to fill in. Uh, with this summary, okay? A lot of details you have to fill in. But that's the point of a summary is it captures the main things. Number one, the first point is simply this. The Bible is God's story. I mean, that, that's, I don't think anybody would disagree with that point right there. The Bible is God's story. It is God's revelation of himself, what he's doing in the world, who he is as the sovereign creator who, who has existed forever. He is the triune Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, independent, self-sufficient, you know, needs nothing, has everything in himself. He's, um, but he delights to create, he delights to act, and he made this world and this universe, and he's at work. And so the Bible is that story of what God is doing in the world and the universe that he's made. So point number one, the Bible is God's story, expanding, progressing on that. Number two, God's story is about God's kingdom. Now we're talking a lot about covenants in this, and I think that's, that's right, but there is a connection that we're going to try to trace out at points between God's kingdom and God's covenants, okay? Um, but the Bible is, a, is God's story about God's kingdom. And Mark has done this so well in the past, talking about uh, what, what is the kingdom of God? What is God's kingdom? Like, what's the basic framework, the basic structure of that? I'll say it, and then if you've got anything you want to say on I'm going to turn it over to you. Um, but, you know, it's God's people in God's place, under God's rule, experiencing God's blessing. And I, I think that's a great pattern, a great structure to understand what a kingdom is, because to have a kingdom, you got to have a king. You got to have subjects. The king's got a rule. The subjects got to submit to that rule. And what happens when they submit to that rule, they experience blessing. Um, thoughts? No, I, I don't have a ton to add to that, but I think that's, that's huge. So that is the basic thing that God is bringing into existence. His kingdom is coming, and it's coming into the world through covenants. These, these are these uh, 
uh, promise-based relationships between God and his people. God is bringing his kingdom. He's revealing his kingdom progressively through time as he brings about his covenants in Scripture. We're going to argue with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus. That, that's, the, that's the way in which. And as you go forward, do you get more clarity as you move forward? Oh my goodness, you get way more clarity as you move forward. Abraham, remember there's that seed promise, I'm going to bless all the nations through your offspring. Well, Galatians 3 brings a lot of clarity when Paul says, he wasn't saying offsprings referring to many, but offspring singular referring to one who is Christ. So, so th- that would not be something that would be immediately completely obvious the first time you read Genesis 12, 1 through 3. But once you flesh out the storyline, you realize, what's the promise? The promise is God through Abraham's seed is going to bless the world. And the seed is ultimately Jesus, the single God-man. And we are in Christ. And so we are Abraham's offspring in Jesus. And God is going to carry out his purposes of kingdom through covenant with Abraham, which is ultimately about Jesus. So you see how these things become clearer and, and more fleshed out as you move forward. Uh, um, so, number three? Yeah, or, number three. I mean, we kind of we kind of hit three yeah. and four already, but it's good to read them. So the Bible's God's story. God's story is about God's kingdom. God's kingdom is about God and his people. I mean, at, at root. Number four, God's kingdom is carried, shaped, and implemented by God's covenants progressively throughout history. Um, and then number five, and it, it, this, this should make perfect sense, hopefully. God's story, God's kingdom, and God's covenants are fulfilled in none other than the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of God's Son, Jesus Christ. I do want to make an exegetical point, though, on the promise to Abraham and the offspring versus like offsprings. You know, Paul's not being novel with his, uh, his exegesis of God's promise to Abraham, like his working no. with that passage, because the offspring there is what's called, it's, it's a particular type of noun, it's a, it's a collective singular, yep. meaning it can refer to a group or an individual. Who could represent the group? Who could represent the group? Yeah. So Paul is not doing crazy stuff with the text of Scripture in Galatians 3 when he talks about the offspring who is Christ. Right. Like he's actually doing good biblical interpretation in doing that. Um, And so again, driving home the point that when we say New Testament priority, it does not undermine. And in some cases, it, 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 or in all the cases, it brings clarity to what those authors were originally meaning. What did, what did God have in mind? What did Moses, when, when God had him write that about you know, the offspring of Abraham, God had Christ in mind. That's what God had in mind. And so that's why Moses ended up writing it the way he did so that thousands of years later, the apostle Paul in writing to the church in Galatia could say, hey, guess what? That offspring is Jesus. And he's not being, doing an injustice to the text. And just to go with that, exactly. So Galatians 3.16, right around there, Paul says, the offspring is Christ. Later in the same chapter, the last verse, he says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, same Greek words, uh, heirs according to promise. So is there, a, is there a representative and also a collective? Yeah, the representative is Jesus. He's the true offspring. Are we also Abraham's offspring in Christ? Yeah, so that, that dual, like, it's kind of like David representing the nation of Israel. David was the one representative who represents all the people collectively. Jesus is the one last Adam who represents all the people collectively. So what is true of the one the serpent crusher, is also true of the seed, us, because Romans 16 says, remember, God will soon crush Satan under your feet. Well, wait, I thought it's about Jesus. It is about Jesus, and we're in Christ. So what's true of the representative becomes true of the people, because God is going to crush Satan through his collective seed and through his singular seed, Jesus. I know that gets a little complicated, but that is a biblical theme that runs through both testaments, the singular and plural uh, in regards to that. Yeah, so again, I mean, verse 5, like, there, there's, there's different strands. We, we've talked about this a number of times. Like 
there's a lot of people try to find that's that one particular thing that is the center of all centers when it comes to interpreting the Bible. And it's like there's a lot of different lanes that are running, strands that, that are woven together to form like this, this beautiful cord. Um, and so that's why these five points are worded the way they are, um, simply to show it's like, yeah, uh, you know, the Bible's God's story, but key to God's story is God's kingdom, but you can't get God's kingdom you know, without understanding his God and his people and then the covenants and then ultimately Jesus. It's not one or these others, it's all together. And I think that's one of the things that the New Testament does is it takes these Old Testament individual strands and it, it weaves them together as it should, showing they're all leading to Christ. Um, everything was going there, but you can't see that necessarily from the Old Testament perspective. But once the new comes, you understand these were always meant to converge in one person, the Lord Jesus. Yeah, that's, that's very well said. I'll just let, I'll let Stephen Wellam, the author, uh, summarize it with a couple of sentences here. Wellam writes, progressive covenantalism argues that the Bible presents a plurality of covenants that progressively reveal God's one redemptive plan for his one people which reaches its fulfillment in Christ and the new covenant. Each biblical covenant, each one, contributes to God's unified plan of redemption. And to know the entire plan, we must understand each covenant in its own biblical context by locating that covenant in relation to what precedes and follows it. So it matters where Noah appears in the storyline. It matters where Moses appears in the storyline. Remember, Paul will say the Mosaic Covenant doesn't get rid of the Abrahamic promise. The Abrahamic promise comes before the Mosaic Covenant, and therefore Paul almost puts the Mosaic Covenant in a parenthesis status and says what's really ultimate is the promise to Abraham. Don't think this one rules that one out. So reading it in its chronological order, its redemptive order matters. And then he says, by the progression of the covenants, we come to know God's plan how all of God's promises are fulfilled in Christ, and how we are to live as God's new covenant people. So here are the six covenants we're going to argue for, and we're just going to argue for number one today, and it will probably take us a couple weeks to get through these first few, but um, the covenant of creation, and uh, I'll I'll just go ahead and tell you that um, this is uh, the most controversial of all of them. So Tom Schreiner, his little book on the covenants, which I highly recommend if you want to read, is a short book that does a great, succinct job of covering pretty much all there is to say in a very brief way. It's a tremendous resource. He makes me smile when I read his opening uh, line here. He says in the first chapter, this is chapter one, first line of the actual book, this chapter is perhaps the most controversial in the book. (laughs) So that's the way we feel. We're starting off with the most controversial of all of them, and uh, I'll tell you why in just a second. Uh, So why should we care? Why should we care if there's a covenant of creation with Adam? Uh, The argument would say against us, Genesis never says there was a covenant with Adam. It does say that there was a covenant with Noah. It does not say the word covenant in relationship to Adam. So first of all, it's not even in the text. Second of all, are you like, what's the big deal about fighting for this point? So four things, and Greg helped me compile these. Uh, Number one, why does it matter? Because Adam has impacted all of biblical and human history. Adam, next to Jesus, is the most important person who ever lived because of the implications his life has had on the whole human race and the fall and everything else that comes after. So we should care about God's dealings with Adam. Number two, we are all born relating to God, condemned in Adam. So when you are born, we're going to argue, Adam was your representative who failed before the Father, and you are born not just sinful, but condemned in Adam. 
Adam's sinfulness is counted as ours. He, he was our representative. He fe- fell and we fell in Adam and we are born condemned in Adam as our covenant representative. So this absolutely affects how we understand everyone upon birth in this world and all unbelievers. Number three, this covenant also helps us put our Bibles together as a unified whole from Genesis to Revelation, starting with Adam. And finally, this covenant shows us what Jesus, the last Adam, has come to accomplish for us in the new covenant. So, the most controversial one, Greg, people will say Genesis never uses the word covenant to describe this. So, Let's start working through some reasons why we think that there yes, is such a thing. Do we have those ready to go up, yes, on, I've got the, it right um, up on the board? Okay. Um, and if we don't get through all these today, we can definitely finish so them we'll, next we'll week. We'll definitely get to Adam uh, more next Sunday, yes. almost no matter yeah. what happens here, I think. Um, because again, remember guys, that this is, it's like laying a foundation that's different than the structure you actually build. There's things that go into a foundation that, that aren't necessarily in the building itself. And so, but you got to get the foundation right. If you don't get the foundation right, then the building will collapse in on itself. It'll be unstable. It'll be unsafe. Um, And so we're trying to build the best foundation we can before getting into the structure that we're more familiar with. And so we're going to list this, but then we're also going to spend some time, as Mark said, kind of looking through the the real-life implications and getting into the story a little bit more um, in Genesis 1 and 2. But we have eight lines of evidence that support a creation covenant. The first six are adapted from the little book Mark's mentioned, uh, Tom Schreiner's book on covenant, um, and a few other, and seven and eight come from some other places, arguments and various things. So number one, uh, uh, first line of evidence, let's just take, take each one as it comes. The word covenant doesn't have to be present for the concept or the reality of a covenant to exist. Okay, that, This is huge in the Bible. Um, like, I mean, we'll even argue similar to this um, like when we talk about the Trinity, the term Trinity isn't in the Bible, but we say that's clearly what the Bible teaches, that God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet there's one God. Um, so this kind of, of reasoning is not unfamiliar to us, but we, we need to kind of expand how we use that. So the word covenant doesn't have to be present for a covenant to be uh, rea- in reality there. Open your Bibles or turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, see, this is what's so interesting about this. We know 2 Samuel 7 is God's covenant with David. If you have an English Standard Version, it even says the Lord's covenant with David, the kind of the heading that the the translators put over this section um, because it's it's covenantal and everything like that. But 2 Samuel 7, you know, um, David wants to build God a house or um, uh, he wants to build um, a house. He wants to build a temple and God's like, look, you're not going to do that, but I'm going to, I'm going to build a house for you, a dynasty for you. And God makes this amazing promise to David uh, that, you know, one of David's sons is going to, you know, be raised up and he's going to sit on the throne and he's going to be king of the world. How do we know that God's promise here extends to the whole of, of the world? It's because David goes and prays afterwards and he says, this is Torah for mankind, um, meaning this is instruction for the whole world. David understands that his kingship is one day going to be a global kingship. Um, but you don't see the word covenant in that. Um, and so can we legitimately call this the Davidic covenant? Yes, we can. As we say, we've got some other scriptures there that we need to look at. So look at Psalm chapter 89. And I have verse three and four on the screen. Oh, you do have it up there. Okay. But I got, I got to turn there. (laughs) Um, Psalm 89. Let me get there. And I just, while you're turning there, the other account of David in this covenant with the Lord is first Chronicles 17. It also does not use the word covenant. But when you look at the component parts, 
it's clearly describing a covenant commitment with God towards his people. So, uh, yeah, Psalm 89. All right, so Psalm 89, let's first look at verses, uh, look at verse 3 and 4. It says, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And so covenant is nowhere mentioned in Chronicles or Samuel, and yet it's a covenant. You can recognize, before you even get to Psalm 89, you can recognize the covenantal elements in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17. Um, But later scripture comes and actually says, yes, this is a covenant that God made. Look at verse uh, 28, another, another place here. Um, says, my steadfast love, God says, I will keep forever, keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. Look at verse 34. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Look at verse 35. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. Still talking about this covenant that God made. And then you look at verse 39. um, And uh, it seems, you know, seems at least temporarily God has forsaken this, but he says, you've renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. You know, Israel's in exile and all of that. But God's promise ultimately stands as we know. And so just on the surface, people say, and it's, it's a fallacy we have to be careful of. Um, well, we don't see that word there. Therefore, it can't, it can't be true. No, the, you, you look at Genesis as we're going to do, like the evidence of a covenant is absolutely there, I think. It's, it's overwhelmingly uh, convincing in my opinion. So just because the word's not there doesn't mean that the reality can't be there. That's great. Uh, point number two, and if you want to turn there, Hosea 6, 7, is, it's a controversial passage, but I think that this verse, um, our, our take on this is that this is actually describing Adam's relationship with God as a covenant. I know that there's a dispute about how to interpret this verse, but Hosea 6, 7, the prophet says this, uh, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Now, there's an alternative interpretation from Joshua 3.16. We're told one time in the whole Old Testament that there was a city in Israel called Adam. Uh, it's one of the early cities when they come into the Promised Land. It's mentioned once in Joshua 3.16. We don't hear of any covenant being broken in, in, in the city of Adam. We only hear it mentioned one time in a positive way. It's not, there's no negative uh, overtone with the city of, of Adam. And it seems to me more likely that what Hosea is saying is, Israel, just like Adam in the garden, has broken the covenant with God. I think that's what this verse is saying. So just like Adam, they transgressed the covenant, and there they dealt faithlessly with me. So I think you've got here what seems to be a text explicitly attributing a covenant with uh, with Adam himself. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, We can move on to number three. Um, So like we said in in, uh, the first one here, the necessary elements of a covenant are present in the creation account. Um, I mean, first, to have a covenant, you got to have covenant yeah, partners. Yeah, you got to have covenant partners. You got at least two parties entering into this this promissory agreement um, that this that they're they're doing. And so, do you see that in the in the garden? Yes, you have God and you have Adam. Okay, here's the other thing that that becomes, and when you see this, it starts to become really convincing. If you want to go ahead um, and look back in Genesis uh, two and Genesis three, we'll we'll reference this in just a second. Um, there are, every covenant has specific stipulations or requirements that are placed upon the covenant partners. And the, the greater in the covenant, you know, says, if you do this, you will be blessed. If you do not do this, you will be cursed. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, all the, you know, all the big covenants in scripture, especially God's with his people, you see that. 
Um, and so are those elements present in the garden? I think they clearly are. Look again at Genesis chapter 2, verse uh, 17. Um, we'll, we'll read uh, 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so that seems like a stipulation and a promise of either a curse or a blessing. If you disobey this commandment, this stipulation or requirement, Adam, you're going to die. You know, the implied is, and I don't know how much we want to get into this, but the implied is if Adam were to have obeyed however long this period of testing would have been, that had he obeyed, he would have received life and not death, eternal life. Um, okay. But clear, yeah, Can on. I make a comment on that? Because yeah. th this is something that doesn't get brought up much. I grant you there's a degree of speculation here, but lots of good theologians have made very similar speculations, and I do think that there is a, a, a logic to what is being said mm -hmm. here. You, you've got two, so like, what exactly would have happened had Adam not sinned? We, we wonder, like, what exactly would have happened? And I can't spell out all the specifics, but God says, we're kicking him out of the garden, we're going to guard it with a cherubim, mm -hmm. lest he eat of the tree of life and live forever, right? So God is guarding against that. So you've got the, the tree of death, eternal death, the tree of life, eternal life. Those are the two options essentially in front of them. And what a lot of theologians think is that the time of testing was a probationary period where Adam was put under a time of testing. Would he obey or disobey? And that you've got two options. Either that test would be literally eternal to where for all of eternity at any moment, Adam could fail and mess the whole thing up. That's one option and it's possible. The other one is that the testing was temporary. And I, I want to say, I lean toward the view that it was, it was set up to be a temporary time of testing, that once Adam would have succeeded, he would have been locked or glorified, locked into a state of righteousness and never would have been tempted again. You say, well, where is that in the Bible? Well, I, I say that because of the parallel between Adam and Jesus. Jesus is called the last Adam. How long was Jesus' testing period? Less than I've been alive, right? 33-ish years, he was tested and he passed, and once he's passed, we, when we are glorified in Christ, we are locked into a permanent state of righteousness. We will never be tempted in eternity. We will never sin in eternity. We will never get kicked out of heaven because we made a mistake in the future. That's not a possibility. So there was a temporary period of testing. When he succeeded in the covenant, we are now locked into our future of glorification without sin. I, I speculate, lots of sound theologians speculate, Adam had a similar setup where had he gone through the probationary period, however long it would have lasted, and he would have succeeded to the end, he would have then been uh, put into a state where there w it could not have been rescinded. But there's no way to, to prove that for sure either way. But, but do you see the similarity between Adam and Jesus? And we're going to get to this in a moment, maybe not today, but we'll get to this soon. I think this is the strongest argument for the covenant with, a with Adam because Adam and Jesus are so closely paralleled in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus is the last Adam who ushers in the new covenant. You can't understand Jesus without the covenant. So how can you understand Adam unless there was a covenant with Adam? I think that the covenant with creation makes perfect sense. He failed. We sin and fall in Adam. Jesus comes and succeeds, bringing the new covenant, and we are righteous in, Adam, in the new Adam, Jesus. And so if, if Jesus' role as the last Adam cannot be understood apart from the covenant, the new covenant, how can we understand Adam without understanding an implied covenant between God and Adam in the garden? So I, I don't think... I don't see this as being overly controversial when you actually put it next to Jesus. It makes yeah. perfect sense that the, the cursing and blessing uh, put before Adam in the garden yeah. fits perfectly with what Christ has come to undo. And so I think it also harmonizes with a, with a covenant with Adam. Oh, that's probably a good place to that stop probably is a good before place we get to stop. on further. We've got a few more points to go, but we will, we will wrap up here. Let me pray for us, and then we'll uh, prepare for, for the service. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, people in this church who, who care enough to, to, to really wade into these waters that can be uh, challenging and, and, 
and I feel the challenge of, of, of understanding and, and communicating this, this issue. So, uh, God, I thank you for those who want to study this, and I pray that you would uh, bless our time in this over the coming months and that you would help us to see more fully how to faithfully, we hope humbly, graciously, truly uh, put your Bible together uh, and to understand how the parts uh, inform how we read it as a whole. And I pray, God, that you would make us humble before your word, uh, help us to be um, teachable, uh, all of us, uh, Greg and I, absolutely at the top of the list, make us teachable, help us to be open to correction, and uh, God, uh, shape us by your word and help us to come away from this series with a better understanding of how your word holds together uh, and as your kingdom comes through these progressive covenants over time. So I pray you'd be honored now and honored in this service in just a moment. In Jesus' name, amen.